Oh, hello. And welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. My face has got the name Russell Brand on it. I spoke with Elizabeth Oldfield this week. Elizabeth is the director of influential think tank Fios and host of the Sacred Podcast. That um, Fios, that its aim is to enrich the conversation about the role of faith in society. Sacred Podcast, you should have a listen to that. It's really good. It's not on Luminary, so you can just bowl in and get it for nothing without a second, <laughs> without a second thought, as like Mama used to make. Um, if you'd like to follow Elizabeth on Twitter, her handle is at Theos Elizabeth. She's a really brilliant person, and I really enjoy talking to her, actually. Thanks for all your comments on last week's podcast with Eddie Stern. Let me refer to them now. But before I do that, go on my YouTube channel, subscribe to it, watch the videos, watch them for long periods of time, and anything that's advertised on there, rush out and buy. <laughs> no, don't. Just do what you want. But I'm doing this new 25-minute YouTube show called The Not Too Late Show, where I sit behind a desk and, you know, analyse the news a bit from a, this kind of new perspective I'm working on, this kind of incorporation of spirituality into sort of political life. It's what I'm sort of banging on about these days. I don't know if that interests you or not, but I think it might be the answer to all the world's problems. So give it a chance is what I'd say. Um, also, sign up to my mailing list in your droves. Uh, go on russellbrand.com and then send us emails. Three, four at a time. Just send us email after email to the help one, to the hello one. No, like if, especially if you need help, if there's something up with you, if you feel sad and you need support. We've um, got volunteers working for us now. God love them. That will direct you towards appropriate support. Sorry for eating this cashew. I've just had a very difficult day and only a cashew would do. Brazilian jiu-jitsu oh it's so exhausting sometimes I think I can't be bothered to be beaten up but then you go and you are uh, if you want to get in touch with me on social media do at Rusty Rockets on Twitter use the hashtag under the skin if you're talking about this podcast and on Instagram it's at Russell Brand you can get in touch with me there and all here's some Eddie Stern comments Kitty Cat OXOX I've been practicing Ashtanga for 20 years and for various reasons Good. Eddie made so much sense to me and tied everything together. Thanks for this beautiful podcast. That's our pleasure. Karen Kuda. Yes, I did the lovely breathing exercise. And just as I was at the end and asking those crucial, crucial questions to myself, my son came in singing about how awesome his butt was. Oh, well, well, that's a sign, isn't it? It's a sign. Everything is one. Everything is one. And, well, you know, you've got to, we've got to make room for the profane in the sacred. Tiffin Singh, I loved it, got the breathing app, curious, why do we ask at the end who am I, where am I going and what do I do next, I suppose to like leave that question there to to somewhat shake the certainty of your individual egotistical, not you in particular Tiff, like you know we as humans, you know who is Russell Brand really for God's sake, who were we before we had our names, who are we? pre-linguistically who is the unborn self that's what they ask so i suppose it's to invite you to explore that blonde orange fantastic podcast i'm very interested in the idea of rebranding yoga how can we make spiritual knowledge more pra and practices more accessible through the language and through the medium i suppose i'm a privileged white female what's wrong with that mate nothing wrong with that and have been transformed by tm and yoga i'm so grateful for people like eddie and russell so uh thanks Thanks for that lovely comment. Okay, let's listen to Elizabeth Oldfield now, an important voice in the conversation around introducing spiritual 
principles into social conversations, which, let's face it, getting a bit leery, aren't they, these days? We need a bit more love, do we? A bit more tolerance, a bit more grace, spiritual ideas. Let's let them into the conversation. Check it out. Let me know what you think. See you on the other side. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Ah, Elizabeth Oldfield. Thanks for coming on Under the Skin with me. Thanks for having me. It's a lovely place to be. Because of uh, we've met because of Richard Iwadi, previous guest, and because he introduced me to your podcast, The Sacred, in which I suppose, as I understand it, you're talking about people's relationship with you know the sacred, the sublime, in a secular context and not necessarily a theological context. The one I listened to and enjoyed was um, John Lloyd, the TV producer, because he is so. Well, I would always have assumed previously uh, overtly intellectual, quite academic and people that sort of seem embedded in uh, cultural paraphernalia. Uh, it seems to me often that's at the expense of spiritual values because it seems like in the cultural revolution, the, the, those values were replaced by a kind of deification of cultural artifacts and cultural idols. What is it you're up to there with that sacred podcast then? Yeah. So... I've had various academics on who have like very uh, thought out, rigorous definitions of the sacred that I've deliberately tried to not overthink it because it feels like the sacred is in some ways really hard to get at with words, but we have to try because it's a conversation. And it's really about trying to hold open some space for us to self-reflect that this society we've got into and the way we live and the pace of life and the information technology architecture means that the space to go, right, what is a good life? What's a good person? What is the sort of meaning and belonging that I'm seeking gets really squeezed out. And so just asking the question of people seems to me to be of value. And then there's also a bit in there about hearing other people reflect on their sacred values, particularly people that you disagree with, helps you understand that actually most people are in some ways sort of painfully and badly grasping towards what they think is good that they are you know possibly you know in good faith and bad faith ways but no one thinks they're the bad guy and that you know the classic Mitchell and Webb sketch and we've got into this binary public debate where there's the bad guys and the good guys there's us and then the enemies and the ways we define our identities are getting kind of tighter and tighter and smaller and smaller and so by having these longer form conversations with people that hopefully the listeners will eventually find someone they disagree with quite strongly, but listening to them over, say, 45 minutes, reflect in a non-competitive, non-performative way, hopefully vulnerably, you just get to hear the fragility and the, yeah, the, the deep, deeply human person behind the public position. And that, I think, just is healthy for us. I sometimes wonder if the publicly held position, it, it, it seems to me what you're saying as well, Elizabeth, is that um, that there's not an artifice to it, but there is a greater depth to to people's sacred beliefs than, beliefs than what they externally exhibit. And I 
suppose what I'm referring to is my own experience of talking to Candice Owens, who's like deeply cons socially conservative and has got some uh, views that I would strongly disagree with around, like, say, race and inequality and poverty and stuff. But on a human level, I found her to be pretty lovely and interesting and fun, actually. And it seems that this sort of, um, I think I've heard you say that because of our ability to communicate, we were more aware now of distinction and difference and conflict. And that seems to be increasing these um, sort of... Uh, ossified and polarized positions but with your own investigations of it have you discovered that uh, that there is a a shared humanity that can possibly be mm, utilized and that can be pragmatic that pragmatically that people can connect in different ways or do you feel that that, that what we're about that we're going to experience further and further entrenchment yeah i think it's the tension between the like the personal and the particular and the machines of the systems that we live in so i've talked to loads of different people i'd say everyone i've talked to i disagree with on something some people i disagree strongly on various things but it's actually really hard to listen to someone for 45 minutes if you're really trying to listen to them and not just thinking what's my next answer or what's my next argument in response to you and not like them a bit like not see some of the struggle not see some of the complexity and i feel like and we know this from the way our brains work in the kind of daniel kahneman thinking fast and slow stuff and lots of lots of findings in cognitive psychology says that we in order to kind of preserve enough brain energy, we sort people into types and categories as shorthand. And that's really useful that we, we have to do that. But when we're in systems that are continually encouraging that in us and continually kind of reinforcing those pathways, it's really easy, it's really difficult when there's a person in front of us, a real person, to switch out of the you're a type of person to you're a real person. And Martin Buber calls it a kind of I-it relationship to an I-thou relationship. And so through trying to do this again and again and trying to like draw deeply on some of the kind of Christian tradition of nonviolence and and other traditions of, of nonviolence in like really practical, small conversational ways of just like controlling my response to them, not putting my guard up, trying to like stay stay in a conversation with them, it it is incredibly powerful and that's when persuasion happens or mind change happens or people see outside their tribe or people understand the effect they're having on people. But what I don't know is how you scale that. My, um, the conclusion I'm coming to is that we need a kind of tr a mass training in citizenship for the incredibly difficult job of holding the tension of disagreement and difference and like learning to tolerate our fight or flight response to people that we don't like or we think reject us or who question our identity. But we've then got the way clickbait works and the way political campaigning works, which is like deliberately forming us in the other direction. And so the intention and the attention required to develop the skills to be healthy people in diversity is it, like, I, I'm maybe 5% better at it than I was before. I'm still really shit at it. And I spend a lot of time thinking about it. 
it's not far, isn't it? Because I spend all my time trying not to be depressed and it takes such a lot of dedication and devotion. For me, the, the lens to which I've come to spirituality is uh, the 12-step program, which I suppose is Christian-derived, but explicitly universal and non-denominational. But like I suppose in terms of its immediate heritage it, and its vocabulary, it bears a lot of... Uh, christian uh, baggage you're straight up christian is that right i am um, yeah like i immediately want to quantify and qualify what we mean by the world and people have got all kinds of associations with it like it's semiotically a bit complicated but i don't want to deny it as a label i'm a bit i'm a big fan of jesus i believe there's a god i think that probably makes me christian in most people's eyes i'm gonna write down jesus and god yeah there. the jesus. g bomb and the j bomb they both just dropped right them right out. in there straight away feel the discomfort in the room i i like jesus and god also good what's that think tank theos all about then yeah uh it is so the real shorthand shorthand is i wouldn't put this on a strategy paper probably but we're trying to be an antihistamine for those with an allergy to religion so i worked in the bbc for a long time I had become a Christian a bit later. I felt like my lived experience of being a Christian and the public presentation of what Christians were like or Christians' ideas were were so far apart that I spent an enormous time amount of time frustrated. And when it was possible and appropriate, I'd be trying to get Christian voices, say, on the moral maze. Someone asked me to get a Christian voice. I was like, great. So I'd go and try and find one. And they were all shouty campaign groups who just sounded tribal and off-putting or lovely thoughtful bishops who <laughs> you know didn't have a mobile phone and wanted to you know if they did eventually get back to me in time to make the program they wanted to quote the original greek and how jesus was like autumn leaves or something that just was like ah <laughs> so unable to communicate with where most people are and where my generation is and so theos was already existing but i left the bbc and feel like just i want to close that gap a little bit i want to say like, I think Christianity in particular, religion in general, is a bunch of flowers. It is a beautiful, enriching source of goodness and it's got some thorns. But we know about the thorns. Like, the thorns the thorns are everywhere. Everyone knows about the thorns. That's what everyone focuses on. What's the, the thorns? The colonial history, yeah, recent yeah. scandals around Catholicism. Yeah, homophobia, patriarchy. Like, oh, you yeah. name it. Like, all, all of the negative associations that some people rightly have with religion. That I have some of those. Uh, but... And it's that we need to, like, when you talk about those, I'm very happy for those to, like, I want those to be known and talked about and wrestled with, but they're the exception, not the rule. Like, the, the, the bunch of flowers itself, the, the lived experience of, like, the majority of the world finding meaning and belonging and goodness in religion, that story's never told. So we want to just do great rigorous research to kind of bust some of the nonsense that's talked about to say, actually, there's good data to refute some of these things or to just balance the argument and then do interesting events and create space to reflect and just be kind of not Fruit Loops who well happen done. to be religious. <laughs> why is that story not told? Mm. Why is this, why, why are we more familiar with the extremity, uh, the, the extremes within Christianity? Why are we so well versed in, in your analogy with the thorns, mm. the patriarchy, the misogyny, the, um, what? and also, once a sort of a system for an ideological system is so hampered and impeded by such over and problematic notions, how can it 
lay claim to being a, a valid ideological system? Yeah, two incredibly brilliant and uh, dense questions. I think, so the first one, the honest answer is, I don't know exactly why we've got here. Part of it is that religion is not an exception in the sense that, the and I know this from being in a journalistic environment, that we focus on the negative. You know, there is a negativity bias in human beings generally. You know, our brains seek problems and threats and fears as a protection mechanism. And there is a kind of reward system in that, which, you know, from whenever there was like, you know, printing presses, but especially now, we're much more likely to click on news that makes us angry or makes us feel self-righteous or gives us a reason to judge people or to say, ha you're a hypocrite. And... So that maybe good, maybe unlovely impulse in us is just fed whatever the media covers. And I'm someone who loves journalists and thinks the media is generally a good thing. And most people working in it are trying their best, but the, the incentives are problematic. So I think it's partly media. I think it's partly maybe, and this is a big story, but that when you've had such a sense of the universal nature, particularly of Christianity in the West, when you had... It was a sense of a story that everyone was part of and like for good or ill, a kind of assumption as background white noise. And then when that's challenged in the way that it was, you know, beginning with historical critical readings of the Bible and then particularly, you know, through the Holocaust and the 20th century and the sense in which lots of the things that seemed obvious about faith stopped being obvious and people link this to things like the Industrial Revolution, the, the way the world gets less enchanted um and developments in science although those often go hand in hand with theology actually and there's much less of a conflict there than we think what you get is i think probably a a sort of multi-generational sense of betrayal or disappointment and a rebellion against what used to be the authority and so like back end of the 20th century everyone's going through university being taught the secularization thesis like religion is dying out we came out of the darkness of the Middle Ages into the light of progress and liberalism. And what's interesting now is that's being turned on its head and lots of commentators are going, okay, maybe that wasn't wasn't the case, but still that sense of, we want there to be a progress away from myth into fact. And when that narrative gets complicated, we get unsettled. I also think like there's just, Christians have been what human beings are, which is deeply sinful and power hungry at times. And there's lots of very valid criticisms and, they're all there in the New Testament. Like the, ch- the early church is doing it. There was never any assumption that we'd be able to live as Jesus called us to. But, and Jesus was pretty flipping tough on hypocrites. But still, hypocrisy stinks and Christians are hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. And that's easy to react against. And then maybe I think, sorry, it's a really long answer, but I think there is a psychological firestorm that you set off in people when you start talking about God. And I became a Christian a bit later, but I remember that sense of, I really want this to be true, but I almost don't want to open myself up to it being true in case it's not. And I'm disappointed and I feel like a fool. Like the idea there might be a God who loves me and who like forgives everything and like literally loves me whatever I do and says, here's a fresh start for you. is such a tantalizingly good thing that it's almost easier not to not to go near it. And when people, when I talk about that with people who don't believe, I, I feel a duty of care for them because that's, that's deep stuff, right? It's hard to talk about. And 
So those why, are some why of the do you think it's deep? Why do you think what do you think that addresses that idea of inviting a an unconditional life at the level of essence? What do you think that's addressing, and why do you think that's conflicting when it seems like it would be something that obviously would be welcome? Yeah, I mean, I think we long for it. We long for someone to say you're you're approved of as you are, and you're accepted as you are. Like, come home. <laughs> which is the offer of, like Christians believe is the offer of Jesus on the cross, like come home. Um, but also people talk in theological circles, people talk sometimes about the scandal of grace, that there is a deep sense in us, a deep sense of justice. And I'd say that's God given, but a deep sense of justice. Like if things are wrong, they should be punished. And if things are right, they should be rewarded and and at least in some theological traditions within Christianity, grace undoes that and says no. Like there's no there's no celestial ledger of your rights and wrongs. Like what Jesus offers, however you understand the weirdness of the cross, Jesus offers like wipes that out. Like I'll take that. And then out of the unconditional love and gratitude and sense of freedom, we learn to be better. We learn to be more loving. We learn to care for others. We learn to kind of rain in our ego and our selfishness because we see the shallowness of the stuff that the world tells us will make us happy um but i think we the yeah we want we want justice ideally justice for other people not justice for us um but particularly when you talk about like great evildoers the idea that they could just be forgiven feels you know pretty challenging what happened uh, it's Prior to becoming a Christian person, what type of a person were you? And then what happened? Yeah. Uh, well, I was only 15, so I, I had no idea what time... I mean, I have no idea what type of person I am now, but I definitely didn't. <laughs> Age 15, I was whatever my friends were, you know. Um, my dad was, like, vaguely culturally Christian. My mum really wasn't. My mum's family isn't. Where'd you grow up? In a little village in Hampshire, near Basingstoke. Went to FE College. Basingstoke, amazing Stoke with all its roundabouts. Um, yeah, I was just a normal teenager, I think. And then a friend invited me to youth group because she fancied a boy and I fancied a boy and we we're very hormonal. And then they, the leaders of the youth group, they just seemed really peaceful. And I wasn't peaceful because I was 15. <laughs> and... Um, I think quite driven and like wanting to was a sort of like girly swat in that sense and was already in that like I need to achieve I need to achieve and I'm not going to be the most attractive girl in school so I'm going to be the smartest girl in school and that's how I'm gonna make an identity for myself and then I went to this Christian festival again because there were lots of really hot boys and we went and stood and sat on the skate park and watched the boys skate um, and then every night there was a big meeting in a tent and there'd be a talk and I'd go and listen to the talk and be like, ah, I don't know, what about other religions? You know, this is all nonsense. And then uh, they, they'd they start talking. Have you come, come across talk, speaking in tongues as a concept? Yes. So they would, they would pray for the Holy Spirit and then people would start speaking in tongues, at which point I would make a swift exit because obviously they were insane. Um, and then on the very last night I prayed, I can't believe I'm telling you this, it feels pretty vulnerable, but that's good. Um, I prayed... God, if you're real, would you show me? And he did. And I 
had a very powerful ecstatic experience flat out on the floor and have since not been able to shake him off you had an ecstatic experience mm. yeah that's a real sociological term for it isn't it <laughs> i realized i've been around university too much now <laughs> uh i had and i fell over and i had a sort of maybe a tra- like a trance state maybe a sense of the overwhelming of, of overwhelming love and acceptance and i stood up different and so yeah that's where i start from really all right so you got into it mostly as far as i can gather from pursuing yeah. hot boys yeah and then were rewarded for this lust with an epiphany. See, scandal of grace. <laughs> that's fantastic. I suppose that's um, what I'm interested in is uh, the interface between the known and the unknown. For me, like uh, early spiritual experiences were the disruption of my personal identity, say through hallucinogens mm. and the, the feeling of compromise at my core and the the invitation of what felt like a non-local secondary consciousness occupying me like in a way isn't like all, all theology just providing us a framework and a, a language to describe the unknowable as opposed to having a claim on uh, some territorial claim on essence like like when you were talking about that uh, rapture there or ecstasy like I was thinking oh that's a bit like some things that happened to me on acid or something that my mate described once when he went to see Muji a meditation teacher who's from Brixton and curiously enough the murder of his sister is what ignited the murder or death in custody I should say to be sort of legally uh, <laughs> accurate like of his sister started the Brixton riots he gone on to become a brilliant sort of teacher anyway my mate went to see him in Brixton and he said that like during Muji's meditation, he sensed this, and he do what you like in here, go Burn crazy, one, yeah, belch, swear, smash the place up, why don't you? Excellent. <laughs> You're really doing great working and doing some of our prejudices <laughs> about Christianity, <laughs> mostly by being vulgar. Great. I'm fine, I can do that. <laughs> um, he said that he had this sort of transcendent experience, an experience like, and what's lovely about this is uh, that, that this particular friend is not someone that. If, uh, to whom I would immediately attribute that kind of experience. He's mm. pretty uh, normal, working class type person. And like when he talks about this sort of light and this sense exactly the same as you of overwhelming love and acceptance, um, you know, like it sounds like, you know, mm. no different to what you're describing. So what's the, in, what um, is, other than your journey, your particular and specific journey to mm. it, what is particularly Christian about that experience? And do you think that, you know, because one of the things, like I've got another mate actually at the moment who's banging to the Christianity, which she seems to be expressing primarily by going down Hyde <laughs> Park bugging Muslims, right? Interesting, and I, interesting. <laughs> and I like, um, and I like, I feel like that's not the best use of Christ's message. Um, so, do you feel as many people do that? But it has to be specifically and particularly via, you know, him. Or do you think, you know, well, as long as you're pieced out, who cares? I have a kind of running back project. For some reason, I end up talking to a lot of people on the podcast who are really into psychedelics. And I feel like if we could get my friends who are charismatic Christians and my friends who've had really psychedelic experiences together in a room, it would be really interesting to compare notes on that. So I'm like, I'm fascinated in 
fascinated by what is going on in those experiences but I've kind of my friend Jonathan calls it a second naivete I think it's Paul Ricoeur but I don't know I'm it's a second hand quote where I, I became a Christian through those powerful experiences and then I kind of developed intellectually and started reading the Bible differently and for a while it all fell apart and I tried to be an atheist and then when I sort of found my way back it was much more intellectual I didn't have any of those experiences they were stripped out and they seemed to be like a childlike emotional thing and actually I wanted my religion to be very rational and intellectual and actually now I'm right back I'm like yeah. I want to get on my knees and every time I go to church I have a cry and my hands shake and I have a strong sense of the presence of God and I need it and what is going on there like I have no idea I just know that it's good and in terms of the particularity of like why I'd call myself a Christian and why I would want to foreground Jesus is because of who Jesus is and because of what he says, as far as we can tell from the scriptural accounts and actually a sense of warning. And this is where I would disagree with John Lloyd and we had a really, really good chat about it and we'll continue to be in conversations about it. That for me, there is something really powerful and good about a particularity, about each tradition has so much richness and so much to explore and you you, you know you could spend your whole life taking the layers of of the onion off and the person of Jesus is just like a magnet for me and he seems to be saying something about particularity something about yeah about himself and what role he plays but i sort of don't think it's my business or my job to go therefore you guys are all wrong i think god jesus is quite clear that that's between them and god like i don't get to judge other people i don't get to accuse other people that's their story that's not my story i just want to be wrestling with this amazing book and committed to a community of different people and seeking to learn to love better in in that framework and in that tradition and because I see something in the cross and something in the power of grace that is compelling and I like I learned loads from other religions I had a great chat with one of <laughs> taxi driver on the way here called Nassim about his tradition and I want to kind of hold those in honor but say something about Jesus there's something about him that I, there's an itch about him that I can't shake off and that I could spend my whole life working out what I think to return to something we were discussing a little earlier, the sort of subsequent institutionalization of that message, I spoke to someone once, if it was Rez Aslan, I think, he said that um, that there's a corollary between the message of prophets and the subsequent instantiation of power structures that uh, is uh, you know, like it's comparable. And when we were talking about the uh, negative connotations of, of Christianity, the patriarchy themselves. You know, they don't need to keep listening, do we? Yeah. It's out of order. But you, you've made it clear you're it's into right. Christianity. It's all right. Can't keep banging on about it. Um, but like, uh, like it feels to me that, in a sense, the um, secondary experience of Christianity, like from like some, like Paul's Christianity, is not christ's already and like the 
much of the Christian literature that I enjoy, not that I'm by any stretch a theologian, and you literally are I'm because you, hold on a minute, you've got an MA in theology from King's, Cross, uh, King's College London, so you are a theologian, does that mean? I, I don't know who gets yes, to call themselves a theologian. you've got an MA, yeah. so that's, you I'm are. I'm highly qualified. I know there's different types of qualifications, different configurations of the alphabet that are yeah, yeah. more impressive, but nonetheless, from where I'm sat. But still, like when people return to what I think I understand is called first century Christianity, a sort of a return to the values of Christ. And it's sort of like Christ with whom you seem to be specifically infatuated. And like there's nothing in what he's saying that's in a way um, paves the way for the sort of problematic aspects of Christianity. So isn't there a kind of a sort of room for a kind of deracination of, of all institutionalised faith and a, a kind of return to first principles, a kind of perennialism that could be found in the Christianity that you're describing as espoused by Christ, so literal Christianity, or, or like early like Su Sufi principles, for example, of... Buddhism, like you know, where these things align, where like not to in any sense, um, there's no uh, deny an, another person's right to be uh, to p select a particular pathway, but in order that we don't continually create these battlegrounds, these theological and ideological battlegrounds, it could we achieve some kind of consensus? that as long as we're heading to the same place, it doesn't really matter how we get there. And that there is a clear, that, that the process that occurs as religions evolve seems to be somewhat uniform and says more about, as you said, sin and power and greed than it does about the original message. Isn't there room? I mean, I know that sort of there's been wave after wave of Christianity where people go, oh, you've gone too far. Get rid of the candlesticks. We need to get a bit more austere. I'm banging that on the door. You know, like that. I know that like, that sort of thing happens or John Wesley it happens like again and again and again. But, but perhaps these, but perhaps something that's making such a bold claim as providing a portal to the unknown and providing redemption and providing overwhelming love does have a, a duty to be continually revivifying itself, resetting itself. Yeah. I'd wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think it has been. Like, every church I know is constantly wrestling with this, of the, like, gap between the size of the vision and the reality of our, like, deeply broken, problematic institutions and the individuals in them. I just think... <laughs> I, th I, I guess what my Christianity, one of the things it does is it teaches me to be quite suspicious of my own ability to judge these things and also suspicious of a kind of hyper-individualization which says that I, only I, or only the pure, untethered individual can access truth and anything that seeks to, you know, gather or codify or, you know, lay down is suspicious and I sort of used to be there and I'm less so now because I feel and again the older I get the more my sacred my sacred values and my practice becomes about encounter with other human beings like that again Martin Buber says you know all, all true religion is meeting all true living is meeting that there's something in a proper vulnerable human to human encounter that is sacred and that those happen best in community and they happen best in community over time and they happen best in communities of trust that have roots and are committed to each other for the long term 
And when you've got that, you've got an institution and you can try and keep it as flat as possible and you can try and keep it as democratic as possible and as light touch as possible. And, you know, it sort of accrues stuff over time and then every so often you have to you have to strip it off. But I actually do want to belong to things. I want a sense that we if we if we're doing it with true humility and the kind of you know the new testament talks about we see it in a glass darkly and then we'll see face to face we don't know there's like there's mystery everywhere we look we're working on hunches but that there's wisdom in each other and in consensus and collaboration and in, in conversation and i kind of want to defend that as a as a joyful and a beautiful thing yes <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, I, I do. That you've got a personal attraction and a personal attachment to those ideas, and that that's you feel that you've been uh, formed and formulated through aspects of that institution, and yeah. you feel a degree of uh, you are enamoured still. So I think the church is both disgusting and the hope of the world. Like there is, and the same probably goes for other religious institutions. Like. The, but I've sort of stopped expecting it to be anything else. Like my anthropology is that we're fragile and fallible and easily misled and we worship the wrong things and we have incredible capacity for beauty and generosity and that both the things are true, which is why the world looks like it looks and that we need to be, yeah, that, that community and encounter in diversity and difference over time in commitment is like how we how how we survive that condition if even if we don't get to improve <laughs> yes yes and uh, given that as we've touched upon we, there was the assumption that that um progress was going to be a, an increasingly secularized society we're starting to see the limitations of that the uh, the revival of uh, faith-based ideas in extremists and sometimes again the, the negative aspects of faith at the forefront prejudicial uh, confrontational uh, self-righteous as opposed to righteous ideas and i wonder that it, in this now we live don't we in a sort of a globalized space this um romantic if i may say idea of having a a, a bounded community uh, a parish identity it seems like because i agree with you that like with that thing you said that martin buber thing that relationships over time community connection I, in a sense i feel like i've been in my own life trying to create those kind of or participate rather in those kind of communities again through sort of 12 step groups or even something as uh, parochial as Brazilian jiu-jitsu provides a kind of structure, hierarchy, respect, humility, like a sort of community values. I feel like all of the ideas we are discussing live in opposition, not to alternative spiritual ideologies, but to materialist and rationalist ideologies that's where the true opposition comes from from uh, materialism consumerism corporatism and, and the other forces and ideas that undergird globalization as we currently understand it so for there to be a kind of uh, renewed sense of community where people bond together on long spiritual lines as opposed to under Econ uh, 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 rather than economic relationships 
it feels like there's going to need to be a kind of confederacy that necessarily can't be denominational because otherwise we're going to be how do you achieve alliance with yeah. muslims atheists yeah when you've got such a dominant narrative when we've been, and I, the thing is i don't know anyone set out to do it but somehow we've been sold this pack of lies about what a good life is and what I, is that pack of lies just to clarify some yeah, yeah what is it like success so, and money and yeah. some sex and a nice car yeah i think so so one of the most helpful books i ever read actually was by a famous atheist called alan botton and he wrote a book called status anxiety and he really puts his finger on this issue that one of the defining features of life is this like jostle at the sort of sideways look and the sideways look of where's everyone else where am i where's everyone else where am i am i ahead am i behind like am i hotter am i less hot am i fatter am i thinner am i clever am i not have i got a better job title and all these things and i don't think anyone actually intellectually assents to that i don't think anyone goes oh yeah the most important people in the world are the rich hot ones <laughs> they are the people we want to spend all our time looking at and trying to be like that's what i want my life to be i'm going to live my life like that i don't i don't think anyone consciously does that but unconsciously because of the way the storytelling of our culture works that's what happens and so we get this system in the same way i think that the patriarchy is shit for men as well as women we get a system of status anxiety that is terrible for the winners and the losers. So those at the bottom who feel like, you know, they, they they don't have dignity because they're not economically productive or they're not physically attractive or they're not seen as a winner, suffer. And they suffer a deep crisis of identity and meaning. And we know that it t correlates terribly with mental health and well-being. If, you're, if, you, if you define yourself as a loser in the system, you suffer. But those who have won... And, for, and maybe you experienced this and I read your addiction book and talk about this beautifully. Like those who those who pursue those goals and win, who get the things the world tells us will satisfy us and then aren't satisfied also suffer because they feel like being sold a pack of lies as well. And then often they're isolated and they're isolated from the people that they could have drawn sucker from and they could have been really seen by and known because it's in these deep relationships that we flourish. And so Christianity at its best, and I won't say purist because who can who gets to say what's purist, but at its best, like was the, I think maybe historically the original subverter of that system. It said the first shall be last. You know, it said uh, the cry of Mary when she finds out that she's pregnant is like, you know, the powerful will come down from their thrones. That uh, God loves, the reason God seems so angry most of the time in, in, in the Hebrew Bible is he's pissed off that people are treating the poor badly. And he says, you've kind of marred the dignity of my face in these people. And that alongside others, because that, like that's present in loads of different traditions and in political movements. And if there, if there was a sense of we could all tell that story better about human dignity, if we were all saying, not playing this game anymore, screwing everyone over, <laughs> then that would be a, like a wave of liberation. The thing is with that though, Elizabeth, is that's quite <laughs> radical. <laughs> and, uh, is it? What, yes. And what you've done there is you've, op you've opposed the interests of the powerful. And uh, like when you oppose the interests of the powerful, particularly if it's underwritten by something as uh, potent as uh, pff, bloody hell, connection to oneness, uh, total rectitude, yeah. uh, absolute but We all need certainty. to overcome our egos and get on our knees. Yeah, I'm all right. I mean, I'm trying my best. It's just um, the, the, the knees are weak. <laughs> um, 
But like in the end, it becomes less and less a kind of gentle and reflective Christianity and a kind of more a robust militant oppositional sort of Christ as vengeful opponent of inequality. You know, of course, you mentioned very early on the the principle of non-violence and the degree of commitment that that demands of people, particularly as the terms and the space and the parameters are established by the dominant and the powerful. I mean, I suppose that's almost tautologist, but like, how do you, and do you envisage Christianity ever accessing that level of, um, I want to say, like sort of radicalism? Well, I think it, it, it does and it has. Like historically, many of the kind of most transformative political movements have been Christian. Um, what, like civil rights in America? Civil rights, you know, if you look at Victorian England, the kind of transformation of labour laws around animal welfare, not, you know, not least the, um, the abolishment of the slave trade. The complexity there, obviously, is that lots of the people running the slave trade were doing it and drawing on scripture to do it. So you always need to tell the story of like there's different ways to read this book and i think that there's one way to read it another so you're always in kind of crisis and battles of legitimacy and i guess that the answer to your question is i don't know russell i don't know i don't know how and i feel this like how do you tell a story within the terms of the game as it's currently being played like richard and lydia iowade and i've talked about this like they did a, a live podcast for them and part of the reason that people came is because Richard's famous and we wanted to talk about what that means for status and sort of flag what status is doing to us but using the tools of fame you see and so lot, often in history the answer that Christians have had to this is that you withdraw you say the game is too corrupt society is too like deeply poisonous the only way we can actually live by these ideals properly is to withdraw and um, kind of you know build a monastery or whatever and there's a kind of there's a contemporary version of that which is the benedict option in the states which is a kind of real like we give up we're pulling away from society that's the benedict option yep um what you just pull out you go focus on the vegetables and the deep meditation yeah i mean culturally it's slightly different from that i think <laughs> um, uh, but yeah that you like you don't engage and that you know the anabaptists and the quakers at various points like and the amish guys. and the bruderhof now there's like wave after wave after wave of church, like christian movements who've said we withdraw and we try and live with dignity and honor each individual and etc etc i'm just not convinced that that's the right thing i think power needs challenging and but I don't know how you do it well I don't know and I'm you know I'm a massive hypocrite I'm like not a useful person in this because I'm deeply flawed and and so all of those all of those things about what does it mean to try and live a different set of values live a different kingdom offer a different story about human beings that brings hope when you've got such imperfect messengers I live in the tension of that all the time. I wonder perhaps if there is not, uh, if that in effect there's no tension there that we, did you just eat a grape so surreptitiously? That was startling to witness. It was like a shoplifter. Yep. I mean, if I, people might hear me chewing, but you know, it's fine. I've never seen a grape dispatched so stealthily. It's like an assassin. Yeah. Um, 
that uh, that there's no tension really. In fact, Orton, we embrace this imperfection and the fact that we are flawed in a sense to fortify the idea that, that no individual will ever again be the focus of idolatry or as presented as a heroic solution. Instead, we recognise that we have shared ideals and values. God knows how they're achieved or I suppose you would use the Bible. Uh, like, But like we, we to override... Uh, the fetishization of I- I- individuals. Preach so. it, brother. I think you're exactly right. That would be all right, wouldn't it? Yeah. That's um. So, like, how I but uh, the other thing I've been thinking I wanted to talk to you about was that the decision to um extract spirit. Like, well, you can see the the necessity perhaps for extracting the church from political power, particularly if you're trying to achieve different types of sovereign structures. Um, but uh, the decision to exempt power from spirituality that is a political and a spiritual decision like you just said power needs to be challenged and from where will it be challenged a friend of mine said a few days ago and it's been i've been turning it over in my mind ever since he goes people are talking about like forthcoming election jeremy corbyn and boris johnson he goes he goes on this Unless they have a spiritual awakening, it ain't gonna make no fucking difference. Yeah, and in a sense, I I, I lie this to a, another statement I got off of uh, the philosopher Brad Evans, who hooked me up with this Native American. It's what he referred to himself as uh, uh, activist, who said there seems to be a lot of weight and pressure for us to join the Marxist cause, but we see Marxism as and we see capitalism and communism as different sides of the same coin. Both presume the earth as resource. Both of them see uh, like labor and work as the center of human life. It's not how we see the world. So, in a way. Whilst there are, you know, um, we are often stymied and stifled by our fallibility, as you have said, we need to be bold in our and radical, as you've implied, in our suggestions for creation of alternative systems and structures. I recognise and under- understand that impulse to withdraw to just say, "Oh, this is too crazy," the porn. The madness, the greed, we'll just focus on our farm and our sort of cotton shawls and whatnot, clogs and that. Um, That's how I see it. It's not based on much, but I think I'm referencing the film Witness. Um, Carpentry, straight back to the OG. Um, Like, uh, but actually the establishment of alternative communities that are parallel and adjacent to our ex- our existing extremist ideology of extremist capitalism, extremist materialism, extreme individualism, stuff that's not working for us. Those frequencies of desire and fear continually cultivated and broadcast, continually uh, delivering us into uh, unconscious states, the kind of unconscious states that can perhaps be uh, uh, averted and overcome through spiritual practice, these can be ideas that we deploy in the establishment of alternative communities that are not about withdrawing, but are about the provision of genuine alternative nations within nations. Yeah. One of the most interesting things I've done over the last few years is I went to a festival called Alter Ego, which is uh, a lot of kind of political activists on the left from across Europe. So the kind of radical political parties, but also lots of campaigners around psychedelics, lots of climate campaigners. 
And the question at the heart of the gathering was, you know, why? I think partly like why, and it's very politically framed, obviously, but why does the left keep losing? Is it something internal to us, as you were saying? So it's like, what, what is the kind of spiritual renewal that needs to happen internally before we can change the world externally? And I think some of the most interesting things that are happening at the moment about that, about the boundary of internal and external transformation and renewal. Because one of the things that the system tell us is it tells us that there's real things like, you know, assets and capital. And then there's, you know, mindfulness, which is what we do to manage the anxiety of living in this particular system that values us in these arbitrary ways. And I'm fascinated by where those two come together, where, so we're part of a church in South London and we're, you know, talking praying with people about kind of living more collectively and having rhythms of prayer and hospitality in a kind of you know really half-assed much less good you know harking back to some of the monastic threads right but continuing to have jobs and engage and even justin welby's doing this in lambeth palace as people there's, there's people living for a year in community in lambeth palace who still have jobs but they come back and they have rhythms of prayer and they're trying to work out what does that mean rhythms of prayer so um classically in in monasteries or nunneries and in lots of Christian communities over the centuries you would have um, uh, morning prayer I mean some of them have like nine different sets of prayers if you're a particular religious order that prayer is your main thing you might pray nine times a day you might get up at 5am and pray in the two hours later you pray but classic it's kind of morning prayer midday prayer evening prayer and then compline which is beautiful service that's about night time and kind of giving over the day so these little pockets of reflection in the day that you do collectively and you do your activity and you're out in the world you're trying to be kind of useful and not just shut up in your walls but then you come together in whatever way to pray and to remind yourself and because and i think the i'm sure it wouldn't be explained by this but i think part of the power of it is that when particularly in the way we consume digital media but the way we consume the world anyway the narratives and the stories about human value who's interesting who's worthwhile are so powerful that you need to keep going back to a different story like keep going back to those rhythms of prayer keep going back to this sense of there being something beyond this materialist kind of what's immediately in front of us keep going back to a, a story that's not just about achieve 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 but what does peace look like what is mercy what is justice and so and my friends from alter ego who are amazing who are not religious in any particular way are also in north so we're in south london they're in north london and they're, they're climate campaigners and psychedelics campaigners and not religious but they're also looking at setting up community houses and having rhythms of hospitality and rhythms of intentionality and rhythms of meditation in a very kind of parallel way wanting to say there's a different logic there's a different story there's a different way of living um and but we can't do it together we're not strong enough as individuals to stand against those tides we need to come together and keep telling each other sto different stories i like that i like um the that function of prayer as providing personal communion with alternative reality i like the idea of being able to be you know in the world etc and participating but but it or being acknowledged as if not secondary kind of other and yeah secondary not as important as a primary connection to the source of consciousness or the inner reality inner reality i like that you're um cultivating relationships with groups that are explicitly distinct and if not because in a sense we're not going to have the luxury of opposition with anybody that is prioritizing 
uh, love of one another, establishing communities upon spiritual lines, challenging the dominating behemoths that are accelerating our demise. Like means that the whole Judean people's front deal's got to be dialed down yeah. a, a little. I don't think there's a, a a necessary, although there is in practice. I don't think there's a necessary logical connection between holding to a particularity of a of a tradition and not engaging with people of other traditions. Actually, I think most everyone has a, a set of lenses and a viewpoint, a set of assumptions, places that they come from, and some of those are more explicit than others, and some of them are more kind of institutional than others but if you know some so john lloyd might come from a perspective that there's 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 value in all religious traditions and equal value in all religious traditions whereas i might come tradition uh, perspective that there is value in all religious traditions i'm just not 100 percent convinced that there's equal value in all religious traditions but his perspective and my perspective are both two different perspectives and each of us sort of thinks the other person is wrong but we've what we've taught ourselves is if, if, if we think someone's wrong, we judge them, we dislike them, we move away from them, we can't be in relationship with them. But, you know, even the Christian nonviolence tradition and loads of other sources of wisdom teaches that if we train ourselves, that doesn't have to be the case, that we can believe some believe something different from someone and work with them, love them, live with them, challenge them, try and change the world together. And so I spent, I spend more of my time with non-Christians than I do with Christians. God bless them. I love Christians. I find non-Christians more interesting. I find atheists more interesting. I find agnostics more interesting because I'm curious. I want to understand the, the world. I want to work out what they can teach me. I want to be challenged and like have my bullshit called and be in the adventure of the world. And so just disagreement shouldn't mean tribalism. It shouldn't mean opposition it can mean amazing collaboration if we just get comfortable with not feeling triggered every time someone disagrees with us yeah that's a good idea <laughs> I, I like that it's, very much. it's simple but hard <laughs> what goes on down your church then that you're at on a sunday yeah uh singing <laughs> praying like is it really interesting? i'm really good friends with is um, it a pastor yeah it's a pastor he loves your book all right. They've been using. They they run a kind of twelve step thing in church for any unhelpful patterns that you want to overcome. And loads of people have read your book and found it really powerful. Said so to pass that on to you. So thank you. It's been really liberating for a lot of people. I think particularly men. Um. Yeah. We sing and we sing songs with hymns. Sometimes we sing co songs with three chords. There's something that about music that helps us transition. I think from one mental state to another helps us like open up a bit of space to encounter the divine and then we talk about how we want to live and what scripture might teach us and how we can love other people better um and then we gossip and have coffee <laughs> how long does that first bit last the singing bit no the sort of bit where you've got to stay in your seat i don't say my seat i prance around at the back you prance I prance i dance do i do you... prophetic dancing <laughs> it's you dance prophetic your dancing. prophecies i i i do you lay down and go into that rapture again sometimes you have a little bit of that yeah i mean that i'm maybe That's the only encouraged. one who's doing that at the moment which took a lot You're of at the courage. forefront well i just have stopped caring what people think That's like a, what a relief yeah so it's encouraged in the sense that like that's one of the things that can happen when you encounter God. It doesn't have to. For some people, it never does. For some people, it does. There's a bit in the New Testament where Paul says, basically, if you walk in and everyone thinks you're off your face, that's going to be a bit off-putting for visitors. So rein it in. And so there's a bit of that. Like, don't be a complete fruit loop because people will be uncomfortable. <laughs> but, as you know, if that's how you're encountering God, that's all right. 
Uh, but yeah, it's very informal. It's very... There's lots of kids running around. Whereabouts is it and how many people go? About 150 and it's in Stockwell and you're very welcome. I might pop down. Okay, great. I like going to church from time to time. I usually have a good experience in places where the explicit focus is an attempt to connect with God, to overcome the self. Perhaps they're the same thing. What do you think about the nature of consciousness? (laughs) <laughs> uh, i'm married to a philosopher so i uh what i think about it is it's one of the most fascinating debates and it's it's really interesting watching philosophers when particularly people who've come from a really materialist more kind of physics tradition come on the problem of consciousness and all of their frameworks for understanding the world are suddenly like slightly short-circuited and the the sheer mystery where kind of physics and philosophy end up meeting like if you go far enough in each discipline then you get to just lots of theories lots of fascinating theories and then kind of scientific measurement becomes less and less useful and you sort of are getting into the realm of faith with things like the multiverse so i think in some ways a really helpful space for us to go whoa mind blown like no fucking idea um in a, in a way that humbles us with our kind of sense of ability to grasp the way the world is. Yeah, it's good that you end up there, isn't it? That quantum vacuum, someone introduced me to that recently. I'm struggling to conceptualise things that are outside of space and time personally. <laughs> Although... <clears throat> I mean, I find it fine. It's just like, not a problem. That's all right, just yeah. outside of space and time. Uh, nailed it. No problem. Your husband, is he also Christian because he goes to church on a Sunday? He does, yeah. He don't do the bit at the back, though. That's just you. Yeah, that's just me at the moment. One day, maybe. <laughs> so when you get back home, you go, I think you went a bit far up the back there. Rain uh, it in, love. Earlier, Elizabeth. <laughs> no, he doesn't. But, He's uh, completely encouraging just, it. Yeah. Mm. And then you say that within this community, you uh, are developing and evolving ideas, uh, alliances, affiliations, and um, like projects and stuff. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a bit more grandiose than we'd probably say. But I think many churches are asking, like, we're a minority. We have been for a while, but sometimes it takes a while for people to realise. We're a minority. How do we be a faithful, creative, innovative, fruitful minority that serve the wider culture rather than just have a paddy about no longer having access to the levers of power? And so... There's lots of interesting stuff all over the country and Theos research is some of it. But just the question is, Christianity has often been in the minority in parts of the world. It, it always has been in the minority. And so a cultural shift in the UK where, and one of the things I'm trying to model is like, don't get defensive. Everyone feels unsettled in change. Like, take a deep breath. <laughs> it's all going to be all right. Like, what can we do? How can we serve? How can we love our neighbour? What does it mean? And... So as you're seeing numbers decline in churches, there's a really interesting thing happening that we think, although it's really early days for the the research to be like completely sure of this, but what it looks like is happening is the amount of kind of social action and social projects that the churches are doing is going right up. And so there's fewer people in churches, but each of those people is helping run the night shelter and helping run the food bank and in a way that for many centuries was just intrinsic to people's understanding of their faith and then perhaps in the 20th century wasn't. And perhaps a recapturing of that sense of like practical help as intrinsic to mission rather than maybe a more inward understanding of what spirituality is. I think you're right about that. And in a sense, that's what's required within the what is commonly understood to be the new age or higher consciousness movement, that it 
cannot be or it's there's no point in it being a sort of solipsistic branch of personal well-being if there is no intrinsic service then what is it we're achieving i was thinking the questions are some of the questions are is there a god and then if you go yeah yeah i think there is a god there is a god then the, the, the second question is, I'm does, glad that was so easy yeah i've worked out there is one Great. <laughs> <laughs> i was asking the question from god in the middle of my own beingness and like and then uh, does it matter and does it how does that affect our behavior and our conduct and the way that we treat one another this is again why I'm into the 12 steps and why I'm very fortunate to have been a drug addict in that it introduces you to crisis and part of that crisis is the is ultimately the acknowledgement that the material world is never going to work for you never going to fulfill you never provide you with that sense of well-being acceptance and overwhelming love I'm thinking about it maybe I'm a bit scared of that overwhelming love that you described now I remember a few times when the old overwhelming love comes a bit near I stiffen right up like a Brit yeah I get ever so coarse not yeah. coarse uh, you know taut yeah. full of talk what yeah. is that what do you think that is because is, is there sort of an annihilation in it is there an annihilation of the self is there a letting go of the loyalty to one's personal perspective even the centre of the self is there a kind of death in it yeah, I mean, it's not without existential threat. I think, uh, like the the image that the image of baptism is dying and rising again, like that's what going under the water and coming out is supposed to represent. And I mean, my my kind of you, you pick your favourites, right? But my favourite Christian writers would say that it's not a not an annihilation of self, like submitting fully to the love of God and the grace of God. Is becoming your your fil- your full self, your real self, mm. the fullest possibility of who you are. But you have to let go. I mean, it is you. You have to ask for help. Like repentance is like the start of the twelve steps, right? You have to acknowledge that you need some help and ask for help. That's what, in some ways, becoming a Christian is. That's what lots of these kind of spiritual pivot moments are, and it requires. It's painful. Like we would like to not have to have be helped. We would like to be self-sufficient. We would like not to need forgiveness. We would like not to need anyone really because all those things make us vulnerable and vulnerability is risk and risk is terrifying and and is life. You know, vulnerability is life and risk is life and encounter with love is life. But the courage, yeah, the courage required is not insignificant. Hey, you know that earlier... You may not know because you might have gone off into speaking in tongues for all I know. You said that there is a like a, cor- a corollary between uh, or a correlation between uh, the scientific advancement and theology. What was you referring to? A kind of advance into the mystery or was it something else or do you not remember? Well, just that. Um, so my colleague Nick Spencer did a Radio 4 programme recently called Science and Religion, which tells the story of the relationship between science and religion, although obviously starts before either of those concepts was what those things were called. Um, it's really good I would recommend it uh, but he just says there's no like the idea the, the idea that, where's it on uh, it's on BBC Sounds it's on the Radio 4 uh, but the idea that science and religion have been historically in conflict is just a big fat lie and it's been disproved in the academy for a long time but it takes a long long time for ideas in their ivory towers to triple, trickle down and actually usually it's been an incredibly productive relationship like you know, for for centuries, the Vatican was the biggest funder of scientific research. It's just loads of things that you don't expect come up in that history. And there's lots and lots of scientists that are devout religious believers, not least in the Islamic world. And um, 
And so it's just one of it's like it's one of those particular myths about religion in public life that is very tenacious. How do it's... these myths gain such tenacity? Mm. Who is being served by this apparent polarity? Mm. I mean, maybe Richard Dawkins was like, was right, and there's such a thing as memes, cultural memes. Um, I, I honestly don't know. I think some stories push our buttons and some don't. Complexity is hard to hold in your mind, as is nuance, and we don't have a lot of energy for those things, and so binary black and white stories are easier to transmit they're easier to remember they're easier to comprehend so simplicity is often you know often the enemy of real understanding but it's i'm, I'm a journalist i also like uh, i'm not a journalist but I, you know worked in that i like simplicity i like when you can boil things down because then you can pass it on and you don't need to be an expert to understand it but in terms of big cultural stories it's Almost, you know, it's the Ben Ben Goldacre thing. I think you'll find it's more complicated than that. What is that? The Ben Goldacre. So thing? Ben Goldacre is a science writer who um, wrote Bad Science, and I think you'll find it's more complicated than that. Just and so it happens. It happens with religion, and it happens with science when you have a scientific study and a set of very carefully worded, nuanced findings that end up in a God bless them Daily Mail headline that says functionally the opposite of what the research found because it's been simplified and simplified. I often think that with um with Christianity and Sunday school. Like, actually, I'm glad I became a Christian when I was a bit older because I didn't get fed a set of hyper-simplified primary colour stories about God. And now I have children and I'm trying to teach them about God, but everything available to me is like primary colour Christianity simplified to the point of it not being anything that I want to pass on. So part of me wants to protect them from it until their brains are able to hold complexity. Yeah, what do you mean? What are the primary coloured things that you want to protect them from? And how do you talk to your children about God? And how old are they? They are two and five. Still pretty. How old are yours? Two, three in November yeah. and one and a half. Yeah, similar. Uh, I love talking to adults about my Christianity. I always come like away from those conversations feeling more sure about what I believe. And every time I talk to my daughter about Christianity, I'm like, oh no. It's all nonsense. <laughs> like the penetrating question. Where, where, where is God? <laughs> you know, uh, it, uh, the primary color stuff is like coloring sheets about Noah's Ark. I mean, Noah's Ark is a pretty challenging story about global annihilation and salvation. But because it's got animals in it and a rainbow, people think it's suitable for children. <laughs> it's not developmentally appropriate at all. It needs very careful hermeneutics. Like it needs to be like treated with care. And yet, if you go into a Bible bookshop, every like 50% of the merchandise for children will be about fucking Noah's Ark. Um, that kind of stuff. So, and yeah, just... Yeah. Uh, the. So it is a bit heavy because how am I going to tell my little Mabel God such a lovely name killed everyone out of rage yeah but he did want to keep a kind of zoo so <laughs> there was a boat yeah yeah so my plan is I'm not going to start there <laughs> so there's a there's a woman that I met recently who's been writing a curriculum called Love Wins in the States which has been in churches and actually lots of parents are wanting to bring it outside churches who aren't religious because it's about there's a bit of a panic that we're not actually teaching children what matters because of what we've talked about in terms of like just achieve, 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 achieve. And also in a kind of deeply plural society where you're worried about sounding judgmental and particularity is suspicious. Like we're just sort of seeding 
moral education to CBBS, and <laughs> so that that curriculum is about is basically you just talk about God being love in a million different ways, and that is what I feel confident talking to my child yeah. about at the moment. Jesus is someone worth listening to. God loves you. I love you. God loves you. Like the world is a wonderful adventure. You're safe. Oh, that's a nice message, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's the end of the podcast now because it's four twenty-five. Okay, and I've got to cook dinner Great. for my children. I'm going to ask you for the recipe because I feel like my uh, culinary offerings for my children is a bit uh, it's a bit stymied. It's a bit one-dimensional. Well, what are you offering up? Fish fingers. Fish fingers. Uh, burgers. Little blobs of food. Not burgers. From, from pa- 1980. Uh, spinach Waffles. and ricotta. Spinach and ricotta tortellini. Because I'm like, look at that. It's a vegetable and a protein and a carb all in one. And it took me three minutes. Brilliant. It's definitely not my strongest it's point with Trinity. parenting. Yeah. Up. <laughs> that's okay. That's how I'm going to justify it. here. Eat your Trinity. For God's sake, you yeah. need all three of them. Have a bloody carrot. <laughs> Right. All right. Um, thank you for this because I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed talking to you. I suppose what's our take home from it? We want people to listen to your podcast. It'd be lovely. The sacred. We want people to appreciate Lydia Fox and Richard Iwadi. Yeah. We want people to acknowledge that um, love is that's we can all start there let's not get as you said into the hermeneutically complex aspects of theology and certainly not with children love 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 service if it's not affecting your behavior if it's not affecting the way we treat one another and i also quite like the bit where things got radical Mm -hmm. that's always given me a little bit of a buzz good I've always liked it. That means there was going to be more trouble down the line. I've just really got all nice and quiet and settled down in a rural setting. Children, so quiet. Yeah. But I know there has to be more. The time will come. The time will come. All right, let's start saying shit like that to each other. It like, sounds like a revolutionary cult. Cheers, we could Elizabeth. do it in, uh, in a rhythm of, of prayer, if you like. Does this mean that five times a day thing? Yeah, yeah. We acknowledge little times where the light is changing. Yeah. Seasonal changes. Think something radical come up for air I think something radical alternative realities can be realised through human consciousness there was a way that this reality was realised through human consciousness alright then thanks thanks very much I feel stimulated and refreshed <laughs> oh, what a lovely endorsement thank you I, though that could be the grapes uh, th- I mean they were probably 60% of the stimulation and re- refreshment <laughs> That's right, I, I'll take those odds Okay. cheers Elizabeth thank you thank you very much Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Elizabeth Oldfield. I enjoyed it. She was a very beautiful, sincere person. She seemed like someone who might cry. I wasn't surprised to hear her say that she speaks in tongues sometimes. She seems like she would do that as well. Or the dancing at the back of the church thing. Listen, we need to have some connection with the unknowable, the unknown. We need to have some connection with the sublime and the divine. And I would never prescribe the way that we get there psychedelically through any particular theology. But I reckon that you're going to need to see some way to access the divinity. Or you might get a bit bored of the old life. I mean, what are you going to do? Just look at porn or eat Cadbury's cream eggs or get new haircuts, you know. Well, it will last for a while, but then the hair grows back, the, the porn ends up making you feel worse and Cadbury's cream eggs if you've ate more than five of them you'll know there's a real problem imagine eating one Cadbury's cream egg five times the size of a normal one imagine that that's that that amount of is that fondant in the middle of it would you call that fondant imagine gouging all that muck out (laughs) filthy little inner woods it's dirty little sugar oyster 
All right, sign up to my mailing list, will you? It's at russellbrand.com. Go back and listen to Douglas Rushkoff or Candice Owens or Bishop Stephen Cottrell or Simon Amstel or anyone. Dia Khan, Dia Khan, let me rock it. Dia Khan, oh my God, she was great, wasn't she? Don't you remember her? And also, have a look at my new YouTube show, The Not Too Late Show, which me just, you know, you know me by now, don't you? It's me. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media.